Friends, you can go ahead and have a seat. It is good to worship together today. I'm so glad to be with you. Uh, my name's Ethan. I'm one of the ministers here. You're here on a good day. We're kicking off a new series today. Lots of stuff going on. Um, so I hope you got your coffee on the way in and you are awake today. Oh, speaking of coffee, oh my goodness, uh, our uh, multi-generational uh, women's event, Think at the Starbucks, was this last week. They had this huge crowd. Check this out. It filled the room. We got a bunch of pictures, smiling faces, lots of people. It was a great event. Uh, thanks to all those of you who came out. Pay attention. We'll do it again uh, soon. Also, men's breakfast. Um, thanks to all those who cooked. We cooked breakfast last week. 73 people showed up. It was amazing. We're doing it again in a couple weeks, February 18th, so be paying attention to that. Um, lots of stuff going on. Love Month. We are in Love Month. That's why I'm wearing my serve shirt here representing. It is Love Month. The goal for Love Month is for everybody in the church to participate in one way, loving our region and our city. So if you haven't signed up yet, after service, you can stop by, sign up for Love Month right out the back door. We want you engaged as a part of Love Month. Um, it's a good month. And it's a good time to kick off a new series. And, and we are doing that today. Uh, we start a series on the Gospel of Luke. And the Gospel of Luke is going to carry us all the way through to Easter. Uh, so for the next eight, nine weeks, something like that, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. And I just want to challenge you to maximize your engagement with this series. Here, here's what I want to challenge you to do. Number one, be here every week. We'll be going through it in order, so it'll kind of build on it, so you don't want to miss any weeks. Uh, number two, read along. Uh, we won't cover everything in the Gospel of Luke, so grab a Bible, find a Bible, steal one from a friend. I think, actually, if you steal a Bible, that's not a sin. A little technicality, just in case you're curious. It just That's the way it works, it turns out. Um, re it's not true. That's not true. Um, okay, um, but read along. Uh, uh, stay with us in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, if you want to really kind of take the extra, you kind of get a little more time in Luke, a great opportunity to join one of our Luke groups. Uh, one of those starts today, right after this service. So it'll be super easy. Just go out the back door, down the hall to room 104. Uh, my dad, Lee Magnus, a retired Milligan professor, and Jeff Miller, current Milligan professor, are going to be teaching that class together. That starts today. They're going to be looking through the text in more in depth than we can do here together. We also are starting Luke groups on Wednesday nights. This Wednesday night, 6.30, Luke groups start there. We've got men's groups, women's groups, all kinds of mixed groups, everything you want to want for studying the gospel of Luke together. So either that's right after this service, 11.15, just down the hall, or on Wednesday nights at 6.30. And today, we jump in with the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. And since we're starting a new book, maybe we can do a little bit of background just so we all know what we're talking about. Um, let's see. Uh, the book of Luke is the third book in what we call the New Testament. That's the second half of your Bible. So the first three books are Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. It is book number three. It's one of the four books in the Bible that we call the Gospels. Uh, these are the four books that tell the story of Jesus. Uh, the word gospel means good news, and they're good news because the story of Jesus is good news. Uh, Luke's gospel, uh, the third book, Luke's book, starts with the birth story of Jesus. That's probably what it's most famous for. All that stuff about Mary and Joseph and shepherds that we read at Christmas, most of that is from Luke. And it takes us in the story all the way to Jesus' death and then his resurrection and his appearance before the eyewitnesses. So that's what Luke's story tells us. 
Uh, Luke's gospel is unique uh, because it's the only gospel that has a sequel. Uh, Matthew and Mark and John, they wrote their gospel, and they're like, yeah, we're done. Um, but, but not Luke. Luke wrote a sequel. He wrote the book of Acts. Uh, the book of Luke is the story of Jesus. The book of Acts is the story of the church. Uh, a couple other things are interesting. We call it Luke's gospel, uh, but the text actually doesn't tell us who wrote it. All four of the biblical gospels are anonymous. They don't indicate an author. So you might be thinking, why do we all say Luke wrote it? Well, that's because there's lots of good historical evidence from the early church, from near to the time of its composition, that says Luke is the guy who wrote it. That evidence is widespread, consistent, and unrefuted. And therefore, almost everybody thinks Luke probably wrote it. Uh, we know some things about Luke. He was an educated man. He was a companion of Paul and traveled with him on many of his journeys. He was a physician, a uh, citizen of the Roman Empire, a Greek speaker. And at some point in his life, he decided he wanted to write an account of the life of Christ. And I am so grateful that he did. Uh, it, there is so much wonderful stuff in the Gospel of Luke. It's the one of the most readable of the Gospels. It just, it just flows. It's so well written. And we're going to get to as much of it as we can over the next eight weeks. But I want to be clear. We are going to leave out a lot. Which is why you really need to get a copy of the book and read it for yourself. So you can get the whole story. In fact, today we're going to get to hardly any of it. We're going to start the Gospel of Luke, and we're not going to make it to Mary, or Joseph, or the shepherds, or the baby Jesus, or John the Baptist, or Elizabeth. We're not going to make it to any of that cool stuff. In fact, we're going to get stuck on the first four verses. So, here's what I'm hoping you'll do. If you brought a Bible with you, open it to the Gospel of Luke. If you don't have a paper Bible, I'm hoping you will dig around in, um, underneath the chairs in front of you. Uh, it's not every chair, but like every other chair, we've got a Bible sitting there. I would love for you to have a paper Bible in your hands. If you can't find one of those, you can pull it up on your phone or something like that. But I want you looking at just the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke. Here's what they are. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, when you read the Gospel of Luke, it is super easy to skip past these four verses because they're super boring. And what happens next is super interesting. And I'm a little bit tempted to get to the cool story about the baby and the angels and all the cool stuff that's about to happen. But this text... This weird little four-verse introduction is a vital piece of evidence for us to understand our faith and the reliability of the New Testament Scripture. 
So we're going to park here for a little bit. So if you got your Bibles and you found Luke chapter 1, just I want you to keep them open to these four boring verses because I want to help you think about what we can learn from the tedium of the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke. And here's the first thing we learn. We learn that the New Testament church was a skeptical church. They were people who asked questions and wanted evidence for the claims they were being asked to believe. See, they knew that when a person died, they stayed dead. They were aware of that fact in the Roman Empire. And yet, our central story is a claim that he didn't stay dead. And when skeptics hear a story like that, they want to know, what is your evidence? You see, the whole Christian faith is rooted in eyewitness testimony and historical verification. All the theological claims of the early church were rooted in the historical claims. This is so important. It isn't that they had a bunch of theological claims about who Jesus was. So then they went back and made up a bunch of historical claims to justify their theological claims. No, it happened quite the opposite. They had historical claims about what Jesus did that they said they saw happen. And from those historical claims, they built their theological claims to understand the history. It's worth noting, this is very different than every other one of the world's religions. All the other world's religions, the theology, the theological claims came first. And this isn't just true of the Gospel of Luke. We see this everywhere. Look in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1.5, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Okay, that's his setup, and what's going to come after it is not theology, but historical claims interpreted by theology. Listen to what he says. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to our scripture. That's a thing he says happened. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Why does Paul mention all the eyewitnesses? Because he anticipated a skeptical church. He anticipated a church that was not just prepared to gullibly believe every fool who came along and said a dude rose from the dead. But instead was going to wonder. And so he says, Peter saw him and the 12 and 500 more. And sure, some of them are dead and maybe I'm making it up. But most are alive. You can go ask them. You can go ask them. That's the first thing we learn from the introduction to the Gospel of Luke and texts like 1 Corinthians. The context of the authorship of Scripture was the context of a skeptical church that wanted evidence for the historical claims that were being made about Jesus. Here's the second thing we learn. We learn that the composition of the Gospel of Luke and all the New Testament, the composition flowed out of a faithful community, not just one person, 
Again, all the other religions of the world, the origin, or the major ones anyway, the origin story for their holy text is this. One dude had a spiritual experience and in private wrote a book and tells you to believe it. All the other major world religions, one dude had a spiritual experience and in private wrote a book and tells you to believe it. Almost none of the New Testament has a story anything like that. Certainly not the Gospels. Certainly not even Paul's letters. When you think about Paul's letters, we naturally, who's the main voice of authority for Paul's letters? Well, Paul. But in Paul's letters, he goes to great lengths to always include other people as his backup voices. Like, oh yeah, these people agree with me. And these, this isn't just my own weird little take on Jesus. This is what, this is, this is the thing that we believe. In Romans 16, he mentions Phoebe, who delivers the letter, and Tertius, who, who is the scribe for the letter, and Timothy, and Gaius, and Erastus, and Cordus, who send their greetings in confirmation of the letter. Almost all of his letters, when he begins, begins the letter. He includes who is helping him write the letter. First Corinthians begins like this. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. We don't give Sosthenes enough credit, do we? What was he doing? To the church of God in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere. He goes on and he writes the letter. He's like, this isn't just my deal. Sosthenes is right here. He agrees with me. And, and you might say, oh yeah, well that's because Sosthenes was brainwashed by Paul. But some of his letters include Silas as a co-author. And while Silas did work with Paul, he wasn't taught the faith by Paul. No, Silas was trained in, in Antioch while Paul was off wandering around the country as a missionary. And Silas says, yep, this is it. This is, this is the faith once delivered. This is, the, this is the testimony about Jesus that everybody, in the letter of Galatians, Paul says, he, he's giving a teaching in Galatians. He says, look. This isn't just my thing. I went down to Jerusalem and I met with Peter and James and the other dudes and we all agreed. Yep, this is how we're going to talk about it because this is what Jesus taught. This is the deal. And Luke, look back at those first four verses. Maybe you still have them in front of you. Luke says, I'm writing this book in open conversation with the whole community of faithful eyewitnesses. I read the other texts. I interviewed the eyewitnesses. This is what, this is what everybody knows happened. This is the, the shared communal memory of God's people. These are not private theological reflections. You see, already in the first century... People were making up weird stuff, just like they do today, right? You know, if you pay attention to Oprah or the internet, you hear all kinds of people making up all kinds of crazy religious claims. You know, you know, pray to this stick in this way and you'll have peace. Or spread this around your house and it'll make everything, you'll have harmony or whatever. Everybody's making up religious stuff all the time. They were doing it back then too. And so the church, the skeptical church, said, nuh-uh. If you have some private religious thought, you keep it to yourself. We teach what we all teach, what we've taught together and verify communally. This is community testimony. All right, so what have we already learned from these four, I know, staggeringly boring verses of the Bible? What have we already learned? We've learned that the testimony of the Gospel Luke is rooted in history. These are about historical claims backed up by eyewitnesses. Number two, we've learned that it was transmitted communally. 
It wasn't just somebody off in a corner making up weird stuff. No, there was a community. And if you made up weird stuff, they were like, um, no. And then the third thing that you got to learn is that it was verified publicly. We learn a little bit in this text about how the original texts of Scripture were verified. We, when we think about the authority of Scripture, we often focus on authorship. It's not a terrible thing. Uh, It sounds like this. Uh, We believe in this book because Paul wrote it, and you can trust Paul. And I agree, you can trust Paul. But our focus on authorship was not the focus of the early church. The early church, when it thought about the reliability of Scripture, it did not focus on authorship. It focused on what I would call receivership. We believe this text not just because they wrote it, but because they wrote it while there were hundreds of living eyewitnesses. And all those eyewitnesses were like, yeah, that's, that's, totally, that's totally what happened. Yeah, Absolutely. It's even inside the text itself. The Gospel of John, you go read the Gospel of John, not right now, read Luke now, but then read John, and you'll see it is clearly the testimony of an eyewitness. This is, this is the testimony of someone who was there, an authority on the life of Christ. And yet, even in the Gospel of John, if you were to flip to it right now, at the very end of the Gospel of John, the community chimes in. John 21, 24. This is the disciple who testifies to these things. It's referring back to the story right above where Jesus talks about one of his disciples. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. And we know that his testimony is true. These aren't just one guy's thoughts about Jesus. Like, we know it was true. How could they know? Well, because it's still the first century. Some of them were eyewitnesses too. And yeah, they're like, okay, I wasn't there for that story, but I was there for that one and that one and that one and that one and that one. And it happened just the way he said it. This guy is a reliable eyewitness to the life of Jesus. Paul does this all the time. Paul appeals to other authority to verify the truth of what he's saying. Uh, uh, Ephesians, uh, Tychicus is the guy who delivers Ephesians. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant of the Lord, will tell you everything so that you may know how I am and what I'm doing. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose so you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. He's like, okay, if you don't take my word for it, take Tychicus's word for it. Even within the text, we see verification of the text coming from within the text. In 2 Peter, uh, Peter writes this, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. Two things to learn from that. The first thing to learn is, if you ever read one of the letters of Paul, And think to yourself, holy mackerel, this is really hard to understand. You are speaking the words of God right there. Like that, that is a Bible sentiment right there. Paul is hard to understand. You could just, kids, some of you are taking uh, Bible classes in college. You can just put that on the test, you know, for your next, Paul is hard to understand. And what are they going to do? Grade you down? It's in the Bible. You know what I'm saying? Anyways, but the second thing we learn is that the, the cross verification, the public verification of Scripture was part of the process of affirming the truth. In fact, even the existence of the letters of Paul 
is a demonstration of the church's work to verify the reliability of Scripture. Because the only reason we have the letters of Paul is one church read it. They got the letter and they were like, yeah, this is legit. This is like straight up gospel teaching, just like we heard from other eyewitnesses and other preachers. This is the shared testimony of God's church. You know what we should do? We should make a copy of it and send it to lots of other churches. That's how we have the Bible. That's why we have thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of copies of these texts because the churches verified their accuracy with other eyewitnesses and other gospel teachers and distributed the text in a shared way. And that applies to the gospels as well. The reason we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John is because these four Gospels were received by the church, verified by the church, cross-referenced with other living witnesses, and affirmed to be true. I'll give you a little tidbit here. There's a thing, it hasn't happened recently, but that probably means we're due for another. There's a thing that used to happen every three to five years. Um, the cover of Time Magazine or Newsweek or on 60 Minutes, there'd be a big story about the discovery of a lost gospel. For you younger kids, there was a day when Time Magazine, Newsweek, and 60 Minutes, you know, were a big deal and people paid attention. The next time it happens, it'll be on BuzzFeed or Huffington Post or something like that. But anyways, you get the idea. There'll be this real breathy news story. We've discovered a lost gospel. Could it unlock the key to some forgotten truth about Jesus? All right, so when that happens again, let me just tell you. Anybody who calls these things lost gospels is, by the use of that phrase, demonstrating they don't know church history very well. These gospels were not lost. They were rejected. The early church read them and was like, no. I knew like five eyewitnesses personally. And they never told any story anywhere like this. And you can't just go making up stories about Jesus and expect us to be like, oh, sure, that probably happened too. No, if it's not verified by many eyewitnesses transmitted communally, publicly in a shared witness to Christ, we're not just adding Jesus stories into the mix. So they were like, yeah, don't make a copy of that. You know, I mean, save it because we might reuse the paper, but don't make a copy. And so it got shoved in the back of an ancient library and buried over for a thousand years. And then some archaeologist who needs a PhD, I mean, they do, right? They dig it up and they got to make a big deal about it or they won't get their PhD. So they make a really big deal about it, but it wasn't lost. It was thrown away, okay? Because the church took serious, they were a skeptical church. And if the eyewitnesses couldn't verify it, they weren't ready to buy it. And into this context, Luke brings us his gospel. He was not a mystic or a shaman. No, he was a skeptical, educated Roman who wanted confidence in what he heard. That's what he says. So that we might have confidence in the testimony we have received. So what did he do? He researched it. He read the text, almost certainly. Everybody thinks he would have had access to the Gospel of Mark. Maybe he also had access to the Gospel of Matthew. Maybe he had access to some other text that, that we don't have anymore. He researched it. He read the texts. 
He traveled to some of the locations. He interviewed the eyewitnesses. He verified the stories with others who knew the eyewitnesses. What would we call this job today? Uh, Maybe a researcher? Maybe a historian? Probably the closest we have to it today is is a sort of a freelance investigative journalist. You know, the kind of people who put out these serial podcasts that some of you listen to. I don't listen to podcasts, but you know the ones, right? Where they they organize all the evidence and tell a great story. Or or maybe it's still on television news, you know, and they are 10-week special report. It would be like that, right? Here's how Luke introduced what he wrote. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us from those who were the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. That was Luke's introduction. But I expect if we introduced his work today, it would probably sound like this. Good day and welcome to Eyewitness Good News, the first name in good news coverage. Today is an exciting day as we begin our in-depth coverage on the life of the recently deceased Jesus of Nazareth who some claim is the promised Messiah, even the Son of God. You've heard the buzz, you've heard all the rumors. It's time to get the facts. We sent our reporter, Luke the Physician, into the field to research this story for the last several months. And finally, our groundbreaking report is ready. His book, it's guaranteed to be a bestseller, but for the highlights, turn here to Eyewitness Good News. Luke the Physician has a reputation for carefully researched reporting This promises to be no exception. He's read the written accounts, he has traveled to the original locations, and even interviewed eyewitnesses. Now that his careful investigation is over, he is ready to share his orderly account with you, our viewers. We are grateful for his careful research and look forward to his upcoming special report. Thank you for tuning in. As always, this is Josh Smith for Eyewitness Good News. Give it up for Josh Smith. What a good sport. Uh, yeah, yeah, two things. Two things to remember from that. First, Josh Smith is a national treasure. He came and did that for us. He's, he's such a great guy. Um, but he's also got it right. He's got it right. Over the next several weeks, we'll hit the highlights in here together. But if you want all the details, you're going to have to read the book. So be here every week for the highlights, but do, I'm going to say it one more time, if you don't own a Bible you can read, rifle under the chairs till you find one and take it home with you. We want you to have a Bible. Three chapters a week, you'll finish the Gospel of Luke by Easter. That's under two hours of total reading time, you could read the Gospel of Luke. And as you read, here's what you're going to know. You're going to know what you're reading. You're going to read the shared witness of a skeptical church rooted in the examination of eyewitness accounts, not a few, but hundreds, written in the lifetime of those witnesses. So they were still alive to say, no, that's not right. And it wouldn't have gotten transmitted. It would have gotten thrown away like all the so-called lost gospels were. 
confirmed by those witnesses and by the shared testimony of the church. You'll be reading not the inventions of one man in the middle of a religious ecstasy, but rather what he calls a carefully investigated, researched account of all things from the beginning. You're reading the the memory, the verified memory of God's people. And at the center of that memory is this one amazing claim. At the center of that memory is this, that the witnesses who knew him heard him say that he was choosing to die. The witnesses who saw him saw him go on trial for a crime he didn't commit. The witnesses who watched him saw him crucified on a cross. And the witnesses who waited saw him buried in a tomb. And then they grieved, for they were quite sure there would be nothing more to bear witness to. And then a few witnesses went to the tomb and found it empty. And then a few more went and met the risen Jesus. And then it was a few more. And then a crowd of witnesses were gathered crying and praying in a room. And Jesus was there. And they touched his hands. And they ate breakfast. And then it was dozens. And then it was hundreds of witnesses. And it is the reliable testimony of those witnesses on which our faith is based. And that's the testimony we remember and give voice to every week in the meal of communion. If you're worshiping online, I hope you'll grab some bread and juice or crackers and water, whatever you got, so you can share in this meal with us. If you're here in the room and you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to share in this meal. If you need the elements, we've got a team right here. Just give a little wave and somebody will bring it to you. We want to make sure everybody can participate in this meal. In this meal, we remember Jesus' last meal with his disciples. Luke, of course, researched the events, right? That's what he said. So we aren't surprised that he researched this one. He describes what happened. When the hour for the Passover meal came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And then in the presence of many witnesses, he prayed. And in the presence of many witnesses, he was arrested. 
And in the presence of many witnesses, he was crucified. And in the presence of many witnesses, he rose. And then those many witnesses became witnesses, testifiers to what they'd seen, this historical reality that changed the whole world. And that testimony of what did happen is also the testimony of what does happen. That Christ's death still saves. And Christ's love still invites. And Christ's resurrection still makes life possible. If you're trusting in that today, share in this meal with us. If you need to put your trust in that today, you meet me later on in the service. And, and you do that today. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you for those four little boring verses that remind us that your skeptical church preserved the testimony of the witnesses. Nothing more, nothing less. And so that we ground our faith in a reliable word and a reliable hope. And we meet right now around your table where we hear again the testimony that he has died for us and rose again so that we might truly and eternally live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.